The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Building Multidisciplinary Partnerships to Facilitate Genomic Testing and Master the Integration of EGFR-Targeted Therapy in Resectable Stage 1 to 3 Non-Small Cell Lung Cancer. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash WFZ 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hi, and welcome, everybody. I know that the crowd is still coming over from the presidential session, but we're going to go ahead and get started for those who join us online. This is the Building Multidisciplinary Partnerships to Facilitate Genomic Testing and Master the Integration of EGFR Targeted Therapy and Resectable 1 through 3 Non-Small Cell Lung Cancer. Um, I'm Brendan Stiles. I'm the Chief of Thoracic Surgery um, at Montefiore Einstein. Um, in the Bronx, New York, and I'm absolutely thrilled that I was able to convince my colleague, Dr. Balaj Hamos, to come all the way to San Antonio for this crowd of five or six, which will hopefully grow um, rapidly as the presidential session ends. Um, Balaj is our Associate Director of Clinical Science at the Montefiore Einstein Comprehensive Cancer Center. He's a professor of oncology at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine um, in the Bronx, and he's a, a dear colleague and friend, and I think one of the smartest people I know when talking about um, lung cancer in general, but particularly EGFR-driven lung cancer. So several goals today, um, we want to augment your knowledge of the role of genomic alterations, including EGFR mutations and match targeted therapies in resectable non-small cell lung cancer. We hope to improve upon best practices for biomarker testing in earlier stages of lung cancer to guide further treatment decisions. And we hope to equip you with the skills for multidisciplinary collaboration to optimally integrate EGFR targeted therapies and other novel agents into the multimodal treatment plans of patients with resectable non-small cell lung cancer. And I hope that we'll learn a little something along the way from, from all of you, and I always learn something from Balaj. So I'll get started a little bit talking about gaps and opportunities for improvement. And I, I think, um, you know, th often this is, I think, left to the medical oncologist, but I have really advocated and really think that surgeons need to be in this space too. We and the interventional pulmonologists are often the ones doing the first diagnostic biopsies and sort of getting things going right away, I think, is a critical message that we want to continue to emphasize. And that's important because just like the patients that Balaj treats in the stage four setting often have EGFR mutations or other actionable driver mutations, our patients with stage one, two, and three disease have similar rates of these molecular alterations. And particularly, you see the rates for EGFR mutations here, stage one, 20%, stage two, 18%, stage three, 18%. Um, when I was at Cornell, we studied our patients in the New York City population, which is a pretty diverse um, racial and ethnic composition. Over 30% of patients had EGFR mutations. So we really see them all the time. It's part and parcel of the discussion in the clinic with my patients that I treat surgically. That said, there's a lot of gaps. And as we've had great targeted therapies move into the early stage space, we have to reflect and think about the gaps that already exist in testing in the stage four space. And this is data um, from a couple uh, uh, administrative databases. There's a My Lung Consortium, Flatiron EHR-derived data, really just showing that we don't do such a great job testing for biomarkers. And this is in the stage four space where we know that first-line therapy is going to be dependent upon um, detection of these alterations. It's a little bit different with stage one disease where we have time and can do it later, and maybe we'll get to surgery. We're going to get to the most important treatment. But pretty sobering to see that, that NGS is used only 39% only of the time in non-squamous lung cancers diagnosed. If you look for EGFR, which we'll talk about some today, 76% ALK, 76%. To get all five of these biomarkers, including pd one that we would think are actionable, less than 50% of patients actually got all those um, things done in that study. 
Similarly, you can look at flat iron and you see that you know, not only, again, is, is biomarker testing underutilized, you see NGS testing prior to first line therapy, really want to test, but then we want to treat to the test. 31.5% um, of white patients and just 25.8% of, of black patients. So we know that disparities exist in biomarker testing as well, um, which is something that we want to think about that we work hard at, to overcome at, at Montefiore Einstein. And similar, to, that's breakdown overall. And then the non-squamous where we would really want to and expect to see high testing rates, you can see again, just 36.6%, 29.7% were NGS tested prior to first-line therapy. Certainly, we think that that would be far from what we'd expect to be the standard of care. So surgeons have a couple roles in this. One role, right, is to diagnose, to stage, and to test, to kick off biomarker testing, right? But then the other role is to get patients back to adjuvant therapy. We've got to safely guide them through the journey, the operative therapy. We've got to do a good operation. In the operating room, we have to find patients eligible for adjuvant therapy, and then we have to get them back to our great oncologist for these medicines that we have nowadays. Remarkably, and maybe it's not remarkable, sadly maybe, we don't do such a great job getting them back. If you look about his, at historical trials, only about 50, 60% of patients are able to complete adjuvant therapy. This was one of the most sobering ones to me. This is the Violet study from the UK, Eric Lim. I would argue that these patients are just as motivated as any patients will ever see in the lung cancer space. These were patients who were randomized to open surgery or VATS. So first of all, they had to believe in the idea that open surgery could maybe provide some oncologic benefit to take an open case versus a minimal invasive case. They got quality of life surveys, physical health surveys for a year after um, the surgery. And so they were clearly engaged, thinking about it, thinking about their outcomes. Yet of patients who are eligible for, only, for adjuvant therapy, only about 50% received adjuvant therapy. Speaking of either a nihilism towards adjuvant therapy or the fact that the surgeons didn't do a good job sort of getting the patients ready or getting the patients back to adjuvant therapy. And not just to pick on the UK, and there's data from the US that shows very similar results. The Alchemist trial, if they took patients who weren't put on one of the targeted therapy arms of Alchemist and just looked at did they receive their adjuvant therapy, you can see that only 57% got any adjuvant chemotherapy. And again, these are pretty motivated patients. They agreed to the Alchemist trial. They wanted to look at their biomarkers. They must have heard the story about the potential benefit of adjuvant therapy options. If you look, less than half got four cycles of adjuvant chemotherapy as well. So really sobering numbers, I think. And the other thing that really stuck out on this is that the percent of patients that had an adequate lymph node dissection was only around 53%. So you know, not only are we not doing a good job getting them back, there's probably a lot of patients that we don't identify for adjuvant therapy in the first place. And so with that, I'm going to turn it over to my friend and partner, Balaj, to, to talk about EGFR-targeted therapy. Thank you so much, Brandon. Uh, it's, it's really just such a pleasure to be here today. Uh, uh, you know, it's great to be uh, invited to a surgical conference and see friends and mentors and, and, and close collaborators. Uh, I think uh, this is the best time we've ever had in thoracic oncology in terms of collaborating with our with our friends uh, across the aisle. Uh, great to be here today. And you introduced a couple of sort of disappointing topics in a way in terms of molecular testing rates not being appropriate, adjuvant treatment not being given. And this is in the context of when we talk about stage four disease. Over the last 20 years, we've had so much advances in terms of how we're managing our patients with advanced life-threatening non-small cell lung cancer. Now we can test for up to 10 molecular alterations driving very special pathways how we treat patients. We can now use ctDNA technology to complement that. And of course, immunotherapy has transformed the landscape, maybe even stronger in the metastatic setting. You know, where most of our patients now who don't qualify for targeted therapy will get immunotherapy plus minus chemotherapy. The question is no longer, you know, what do we add to chemotherapy? Do patients actually need chemotherapy? in a way. But you mentioned, you know, the adjuvant uptake not being very robust. Well, 
maybe that's not such a surprise because up until a few years ago, we had only adjuvant chemotherapy <coughs> literature. And let's just be honest uh, amongst each other. <laughs> adjuvant chemotherapy really does not work all that well and is quite toxic. If you look at the long-term outcomes of the adjuvant studies, there's a very, very modest benefit that actually disappears over time as a result of uh, you know, secondary consequences of adjuvant chemotherapy. So no, no surprise that the enthusiasm has been low, but maybe today we can change that a little bit here. So we'll introduce some data that maybe you know, will, will seem a little bit more attractive um, than you might think. And this is the study that we'll be talking about, and this is truly a, a pivotal study. Again, 20 years of advances in the metastatic space. We've been anxiously waiting for the first proof whether precision medicine can break into the earlier stage setting. This study, the Diodora study, tested that question. Pivotal faced with double blind study, taking patients with AJCC 7th edition, stage 1B to 3A non small cell lung cancer. Patients must have had one of the actionable classical EGFR mutations, EGFR exon 19 deletions, or L858R. If you're not an EGFR aficionado, this is about 90% of all the EGFR mutations that we can find. And as you know, Brandon mentioned, this is a significant piece of the pie. It's about 15 to 20% of your patients in a typical American practice, up to 50% in certain countries, such as in, in, in East Asia. So very important uh, patient population to consider. And you know, these patients had appropriate complete resections with negative margins must have had brain imaging either preoperatively or, or if not done prior to study entry. And patients were allowed to receive adjuvant chemotherapy as per standard of care, but, but were not mandated to receive adjuvant chemotherapy, which I think is actually a strength of the study looking back. Patients were appropriately stratified for critical uh, uh, prognostic factors, such as stage, EGF mutational uh, status class and, and, and race, and were randomized to asimertinib 80 milligrams once daily for three years versus placebo. And treatment continued up until completion of treatment at three years or disease recurrence or, di or, or if, if the uh, treatment could not be tolerated. The primary endpoint of this study was DFS by investigator assessment. And this study actually was unblinded. It was unblinded early because the DSMC found the data so uh, incredibly uh, impressive you know, to, towards the experimental arm that they did, did not feel that it was appropriate not to unblind uh, the study on the level of study data as opposed to individual data. So every single patient continued uh, treatment as per study. They were not unblinded. This is very important to remember. And what's also important to remember that this was HACC 7th and not 8th staging criteria. And this slide just shows you the little shift that, of course, you know, between the two sets of staging criteria took place. And what's most important for this very specific study, that, of course, most of the original stage 1Bs we might consider now being in stage 2, but the 3 to 4 centimeter category, uh, you know, those patients were allowed in this study. The approval, you know, for asimertinib includes those. So you should consider those even in patients where maybe your mindset is not to think about adjuvant chemotherapy, thinking about the magical four centimeter cutoff, which actually shouldn't exist for chemotherapy either. So stage 1B is an appropriate stage category to consider based on the data which you know, I'm about to introduce. And this is how the overall patient population looked like you know, for this study. Um, again, you know, these mutations occur more frequently in patients uh, from Asia. So about two-thirds of the patients were Asian, but, you know, one-third was, was uh, you know, a more kind of typical American patient population. 
Stages were fairly evenly split, split between 1B2 and 3A, and about 60% of patients received adjuvant chemotherapy, 40% didn't. Of course, there was a very strong correlation between stage and receipt of adjuvant chemotherapy. Most patients with stage 3 disease received adjuvant chemotherapy, and most patients with stage 1B disease did not receive adjuvant chemotherapy. So here's the first you know, result that we saw now a couple of years ago from an ASCO plenary presentation in 2020. And this was really kind of just an eye-opening set of early results, uh, truly stunning. You know, when we think about this disease-free survival curve separate, separating this broadly with a hazard ratio of 0.2 or so. And, you know, the first thing I want to highlight, uh, you know, just look at the placebo arm. These are your patients with stage 2, stage 3 disease, resected, receiving chemotherapy as appropriate. Just look at that survival curve. Almost all of the patients will, you know, will recur within you know, the, the timeline of the study presentation at the time, about three years. So b basically, these patients have practically micrometastatic disease at the time of diagnosis. Very important to remember how poor the prognosis of these patients is without additional treatment. And then look at the experimental arm. The 80% of patients did not have any disease recurrence within the three years of uh, you know, this particular presentation. So just dramatic differences. You can, you can push a fire truck in between these uh, curves you know, to demonstrate the efficacy. Now, of course, one caveat at the time was that you know, what we know about these tyrosine kinase inhibitors that they're excellent in terms of achieving remissions, but acquired resistance can emerge. They, they, are, they are more, you know, cytostatic as opposed to cytotoxic. There's always a concern that well, maybe, you know, early on, you know, we, we, we see benefits, but later on, the acquired resistance ultimately emerges, and at that time, it might be diff more difficult to treat the patients, so we might see these benefits disappearing. And this is what seemed to be slightly substantiated from the first follow-up report of this, now about a year ago, where you can see now longer-term, you know, survival, disease-free survival curve, uh, Osimertinib on the study was given for three years, remember, and tried to just match the disease-free survival curve at 36 months and see what happens. After patients stop osimertinib, there's a fairly rapid rate of recurrence in the following year. Again, suggestive of that cytostatic nature. There's a dormant you know, cancer cell population in some of these patients that can recur as soon as we stop the study drug. So we were slightly concerned, will this impact the overall survival from this study, which is ultimately the most important endpoint that we can think about. Although admittedly, uh, you know, if you think about it, if one of your patients can live three, four years without cancer recurring, breaking their spine or damaging their brain, I mean, that on its own is actually a significant benefit. Again, here you can see, you know, kind of the same. Again, hazard ratio is very impressive, 0.27, a little bit you know, less than in the first uh, follow-up of, of this study. Um, and the benefits seem to be across the board, uh, regardless of, you know, the very specific stage. Of course, a little bit less benefit in early-stage disease as there's less risk of, you know, recurrence. Uh, that's very logical. But whether patients did or did not receive chemotherapy did not seem to make a difference in this particular aspect. And when you look at, uh, again, you know, the very, very important subgroups of patients, you can see that the benefit is, again, for every single subset that we can look at, although there could be some slight differences noted, the patients with EGFR exon 19 deletions seem to do even better than the other critical group, EGFR LA58R. 
Again, now, you know, breaking it down into stages, I, I would just li like you, to, you guys to think about the stage three patient that you're used to in your clinic and just recognize how with the receipt of adjuvant-targeted therapy, that patient population is drastically transformed into one that actually can do well over time as opposed to very high frequency of recurrences and ultimately demise of our patients with locally advanced uh, non-small cell lung cancer. And the adjuvant osimertinib impacts uh, recurrences everywhere, including the very important organ, of course, the, the, the brain. Um, and, you know, that's as a result of it, its excellent CNS penetration that we've known about now for 10 plus years. And again, here, if you think about just the CNS-specific disease-free survival, you can just see, again, at 36 months, you know, that's how long patients continue osimertinib. 97% of the patients, you know, remained without CNS recurrence-free, 77% in the control arm. That's, again, a huge difference, a 20% improvement in terms of seeing your patient coming back, coming back with brain recurrences. Again, there's a drop-off after three years, and that's just kind of a teaser. Why, why do we stop at three years? Could there be benefit of continuing the drug for a longer period of time? We don't know that yet, but that's definitely something that the whole field is uh, considering. Adverse events, you know, here you can see, you know, the list between placebo and osimertinib. What I want to highlight is that serious adverse events in terms of grades three and four are very unusual in osimertinib. Osimertinib is one of our safest drugs. I was just kidding yesterday. You guys, you guys are so proud of minimally invasive sur surgery. Well, this is minimal, minimally invasive oncology. Your patient on osimertinib typically would have an occasional loose stool. But really nothing more than you'll experience today after the Tex-Mex dinner that you had last night. Uh, really, really mild and manageable. And minor you know, skin adverse events. Very occasional, but you know, more significant to remember pneumonitis risk. Uh, generally speaking, extremely well tolerated. And a very small percent of patients stop uh, study drug over time. In this case, uh, it was 13% in the osimertinib arm, 2% in the placebo arm. So, you know, this, this is now the most important, you know, slide that, you know, we're looking at today. DFS is one thing. I think it's important. But overall survival, that is our most important endpoint that we can consider in medicine. And it was just so, so um, impressive and, and, and pleasing in a way to see the final overall survival results presented. Now, at the second ASCO plenary presentation by Dr. Herbst a couple of months ago, demonstrating that as much as after three years, yes, indeed, there's some uh, more recurrences and the curves are coming together a little bit, but that huge bubble in between the two DFS curves ultimately pushes out towards a benefit that actually translates into an overall survival benefit and not a minor one. This is a 50% reduction in the risk of you know, death within the five years that you can see on this particular overall survival curve. That is humongous. That's about 10% absolute uh, benefit. That's one out of 10 patients that you'll see in clinic that you consider, you know, the adjuvant treatment that you can maintain disease-free for five years. Are we curing these patients? This question has come up. We don't know that. We don't know that whether these drugs cure it, but the daily recurrence is certainly, you know, to the, to the point that they make a major impact as to how, you know, how well and how long patients can live without uh, disease recurrence and translating into a 10% benefit at five years. 
So these are really, you know, adora, adorable results. I really can't say, you know, in any, any other way. Uh, very impressed. And again, the, the chemotherapy question, the benefit is there with or without adjuvant chemotherapy as well. So it's very comforting now, even if you have maybe an elderly uh, uh, patient, you know, maybe a patient, you know, with uh, significant comorbidities where chemotherapy is just not right, you can confidently still offer the targeted therapy knowing that they will derive the benefit from the targeted therapy regardless. Questions came up, you know, could you have maybe not seen as much overall survival benefit or DFS benefit had every single patient received osimertinib at the time of, you know, disease recurrence? And that's a Totally fair question, but we need to recognize that the study was started at the time Asimertin was just simply not approved in the frontline setting for metastatic lung cancer, even in the United States, let alone in other countries. And at the time that the study was unblinded, the company, the sponsor, actually made Asimertin available to all patients progressing on study. So if you look at the exposure to second, second, second treatments upon, upon a recurrence, what you can see is 88% of patients in the control arm, the placebo arm, actually did receive an EGF for tyrosine kinase inhibitor. That's a pretty good exposure. Out of these, about half of them had received the best EGF for TKI, osimertinib. A minor concern about the study, uh, not something that I think at the time, you know, could have been fixed, and I think minor enough that it could not have made an impact in terms of uh, the very substantial overall survival benefit that we see. So, so hopefully I, I convinced you, you guys that, you know, these are important, important study results to remember. Go on, you know, to some other studies, uh, here, but, uh, I'll take a moment of a break. You know, Brandon, have I impressed you? Um, are, are you going to start uh, considering, uh, some adjuvant EGF for TKI? Yeah, I think you have me convinced. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, it's part and parcel of our clinic. I mean, we talk about it all the time with our patients and just the idea that, you know, they want to know. We've introduced the idea to them even before they go to the upper room that they might have a targetable, um, alteration that we would think about giving therapy to. Yeah, but I think with that, you bring up a very good point that I think the earlier you have the information, the earlier you can educate, prepare your patients, the better off, you know, the conversation goes. So early molecular testing you know, from the first biopsy, guiding patients, not just to the best adjuvant therapy, but determining whether they should qualify for some new adjuvant therapy as well. Of course, today's conversation is not about immunotherapy, but especially with the new adjuvant chemoimmunotherapy literature, it's just such a mandate now to perform complete molecular testing as early as possible. I'm going to hit you up on that at the end. There's a lot of questions people are asking about that already. It seems to be one of the most important, I think, um, things weighing on surgeon's mind that we'll talk about some at the end. Great. Look forward to it. Uh, so, of course, you know, this study is highly impactful, practice changing, no question, but definitely opens up, you know, some, some new questions that we want to address with clinical studies. And these are a sampling of ongoing important clinical studies between ADORA 2, looking at that even earlier stages of patients, very likely, you know, that there's, there's benefit there. Is it substantial enough to justify the, you know, the finances, et cetera, we'll, we'll have to see. And the target study now looking at the duration, you know, is it, is it worth it to continue beyond three years? But also looking at now the uncommon EGF mutations, not just the 90% exon 19 deletions and the Late 58 or so important studies. I have to say though that on the randomized level, though, we will not know the duration of treatment for quite some time. So that, that, that's a, a, a challenge for our field going forward. And hopefully we'll have appropriate studies to address that in the near future. But moving on from EGFR, I mentioned 
that in the metastatic setting, we have 10 different markers that the medical oncologist must, must think about, must, you know, test patients for, ranging for EGFR all the way to KRAS and, and other markers. In the adjuvant space with Adora, you know, finally we've taken one, one, one big step forward. Can we expand the horizons now beyond EGFR? And this is the study that I'm hoping to present now, the ALENA study, now looking at the ALK inhibitor, electinib versus chemotherapy in patients with early-stage resected ALK-positive non-small cell lung cancer. So just thinking about ALK-positive lung cancer a little bit, it's one of the smaller pieces of the pie, but a very important one. It might be maybe about 2% of our patients in, in our clinics, mostly non-smokers, no gender differences opposed to EGFR-mutated lung cancers. And these are patients who benefit dramatically from ALK-targeting drugs, such as selectinib, but there's a series of others as well. And these are patients who absolutely do not benefit from immunotherapy. So again, understanding you know, the very specific molecular status guides the clinician in multiple different ways. And these drugs can be so incredibly successful that if you think about metastatic lung cancer, I know in the surgeon's mind, you know, that's, you know, that's a referral to medical oncologist. You don't want to hear about that patient any longer. That patient likely will be dead in a few months. That's no longer the case, especially not in the case of a patient with ALK-translocated non-small cell lung cancer who can respond so incredibly well to these drugs that the median progression-free survival on studies with this drug called electinib is three years meaning that you can give a prescription to your patient with 35 refills and ask them to return to your clinic in three years. That is pretty <laughs> stunning. Uh, now, now, we do need to generate RVUs, so we, we, do, we do get them back in clinic a little bit more frequently. But just as a guide, I mean, just the benefits are stunning. So no surprise you know, that, that everybody was eager to move these drugs into now the earlier stage setting. And this study now is asking really a evolutionary question do we actually need chemotherapy? This study does not allow adjuvant chemotherapy. This randomizes between chemotherapy or best platinum-based double chemotherapy versus selectinib. It's two years, so shorter duration of treatment, a little bit more complicated drug to take, 600 milligrams twice daily, but just as safe. You know, these are incredibly safe uh, medicines that we're so lucky to have. You can see the basic study criteria, primary endpoint being uh, disease-free survival. And here you can see, again, just, just stunning results when it comes to disease-free survival benefits. Hazard ratio is very similar to the Adora study, 0.24. Again, you know, easily, you know, that, that monster truck here in Texas could be driven through. Uh, and, again, just think about it. If your patient, you operated on, you gave the best chemotherapy to, within just three years, half of them will recur with the conventional treatment, you know, path. Just look at the electinib. Just, just look at, you know, the electinib arm and look at three years. This is actually a year after they stopped the study drug. 89% of them, 88% of them are alive without disease recurrence. Again, just think about your average patients from the past, stage two, stage three disease, and how much this is a different era. And again, must question whether there's actually a need to give chemotherapy to these patients in reality, if you can do this well just with targeted therapy alone. Too early yet to uh, have overall survival data, but I think the expectation and the, and the you know, uh, follow-up of the Adora studies that we certainly will, and definitely practice changing. So similar to asimertinib, this is a drug that actually has great CNS penetration, and that's, that's nicely you know, shown here, that again, CNS recurrence, patients coming back you know, with their brain metastasis, the percentage of them is so much smaller 
you know, with the targeted drug Alectinib. So again, again, just think about it. Two years of Alectinib at the two-year time points, only 1.5% of patients have brain metastasis. Look at the chemotherapy arm, 15%. 1.5, 15%. And what an incredible difference this makes for your patient who could recur with a large, you know, brain met, leptomeningeal disease, you know, potentially fatal uh, recurrences. Uh, just demonstrating this incredible benefit of, of electinib. It's not FDA approved yet, but I, I believe in the next couple of weeks a decision will be made. The drug is available, and you know, we, we are talking about this already with our patients, and most insurance companies are willing to look at this very important information and allow our patients to benefit from the drug. So it's important to consider it from the ESMO presentation on. And, you know, this is presidential, you know, election year. I might say, I don't know about, you know, who's going to be the president, but electinib should be elected. Yeah, that, that's, that's for sure. Um, so I, I will vote for that. So now we spoke about the adjuvant targeted therapy, EGFR and ALK, you know, two incredible advances of our field. How about neoadjuvant? You know, could, could we make an impact in that particular space, especially for patients maybe with more bulky, locally advanced disease who could benefit from tumor reduction prior to surgery? There's been a couple of studies done. They are a little bit less impressive than we might have, you know, hoped for. But now pivotal one, Neoadora, uh, if, if we understand correctly, um, has been completed in terms of accrual. So we should be seeing the results, you know, sometime soon. This has three special, uh, specific arms, neoadjuvant chemotherapy alone, chemotherapy plus asimertinib, or asimertinib alone followed by surgery. And we're very eager to learn how this might translate into our practice afterwards. And, you know, the, the train moves on. You know, EGFR is just one particular subset. There's a lot of other studies looking at other patient populations with ALK translocated lung cancer, with BRAF, maybe with MET, MET large international efforts. So we're definitely very hopeful that we learn a lot and we can impact patient care very soon, even more dramatically. All right. And I think with that, we've covered all the dry you know, data and hopefully we can cover a couple of cases. So we're going to go through a couple of cases, I think, and get some input. And there's lots of good questions coming in related to timing of testing, use in stage one that I think we'll cover a little bit in some of the cases. And so let's see what we can do here. All right. So a 56-year-old Spanish-speaking female, um, as is typical of, of many patients, found incidentally, right? She's 56. She's really um, a light smoker. She wouldn't have been screened but showed up in the emergency department with abdominal pain and had a CT of the chest and abdomen. No real other significant medical history. And this is what they found. She has this sort of apical oblong lesion, um, which on CT was 2.3 by 1.5 by 2 centimeters, speculated. And she had a little small adjacent nodule. You can see it, see it there um, to the right of the larger nodule. And interestingly, she had a couple little scattered things here and there. That's not that unusual. I think, you know, we had looked once and we see other little nodules in maybe half of our patients and never quite sure what to make, but really nothing bigger that caught the eye. So she was eventually referred into our lung nodule clinic, and she got a, a, in addition to the CT, she got a PET scan. She had some pretty significant uptake in, in the upper lobe lesion of 10. All the other little nodules really didn't have much uptake, but again, really none bigger than six millimeters or so. Got a brain MRI, which was negative, and obviously had excellent pulmonary function and great performance status. What do you think, Balaj? Sometimes you guys are the gatekeepers for these patients, right? Lung nodule, pet avid, they might send them to you. How do you, what, what do you do? How do you do it? Do you get your surgeons involved early? Who do you, who do you go to? 
Well, you know, I, I typically go to our tumor board, uh, which I think is an incredible resource, and I, I just love it. You know, that, that's uh, the best part of our week, I have to say. We have to extend it from 60 to 90 minutes each week because there's just so many challenging cases and so many great discussions. But I find that that's the best forum where all the right expertise is brought together between radiology, looking at some very specific anatomical aspects, pulmonary t- telling us about you know, what they can do. So I think that is the right pace, you know, play, play, place to discuss. But I have to say that sometimes we, we, we make mistakes, you know, maybe due to feeling rushed or the patient being in a particular setting. Like many times if a patient gets admitted, you know, the medicine team will just get a CT guided biopsy and then a week later we scratch our heads like, you know, PET scan hasn't been done, the PET scan might show something else, and maybe in that case you could have done a bronch and an e-boost patient could have had one procedure as opposed to two. So um, I think systems-wide, you know, we have to start thinking about how to, how to impact care. Uh, for such a case, um, you know, certainly what we've seen is that, you know, the, the navigational techniques have improved just so much. Uh, sometimes we just stand in, in tumor board where we look at some tiny peripheral nodule, you know, hiding between three vessels, and the pulmonary guys are able to kind of drive the needle in and give us a diagnosis. And on top of that, do a careful sweep of the mediastinum and sample, you know, knows that, you know, might not even look suspicious on either CAT scan or PET scan. So I think there's a bit of a push towards bronchoscopy being, being, being the better technique, even, even for the more peripheral challenging cases, just given how much the technology improved. But honestly, I, I do, do rely on you guys, the tumor board, surgery, pulmonary radiology, you know, putting their heads together. The medical oncologist you know, just stands back and, um, you know, we, we, we need a tissue diagnosis, right? Uh, yeah. And it's interesting. I have to confess, we don't present all of our stage ones, obviously, to us. The tumor board just would take too long to get through. But I, I do think that idea of multi-D discussion and having, you know, the pulmonologist besides you guys there in clinic. How, how many in the room routinely use bronchoscopy, navigational bronchoscopy for all biopsies and have gotten rid of CT guided biopsy? for the most part, like 80% plus. So we did the same, and as Balaj laid out, we really have a great IP team, so bronchoscopy was performed. Interestingly, in this case, they couldn't get to the lesion, and this was before they had all of our fancy tools, but um, they did get level 11, 10, 4, 7 negative. So given that, rather than put the patient through another biopsy procedure for suspicious lesion, we took this patient to the OR for a diagnostic wedge resection, and then ultimately a completion lobectomy, because the past showed frozen adenocarcinoma um, in the operating room. And then because of the size of the lesion and, and her age, we did a completion lobectomy. And the final path was interesting. It, it came back, the primary lesion was 2.2 centimeters, and it was a relatively well-differentiated invasive adenocarcinoma. Um, and then there was a second non-dominant nodule that had more of an appearance of a minimally invasive adenocarcinoma. And then interestingly, it had two separate EGFR. You know, obviously the question would be raised, is this intralobar spread? But we're able to get molecular testing on both. And this is something I wanted to ask you, Balaj, and something that we often talk about, like, and you kind of alluded to it, are all EGFR mutations the same? We see these reports, we see all these numbers, trying to know, trying to understand, is it different? If we just see EGFR, could we pull the trigger on osimertinib? Or, you know, how would you think about something like this with two different EGFR mutations? And what is that second EGFR mutation? Yeah, I, I didn't realize that you were going to challenge me this much. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, um, I mean, number one, EGFR mutations come in different categories. So the classical actionable ones are exon 19 deletions, LA58R. That's 90% of our cases. The rest of the 10% breaks into two major categories. One is called exon 20 insertions, and they need to be approached very differently. 
Uh, you know, now there's a bispecific antibody, amiventanib, which is approved and is moving into frontline with chemotherapy. Certainly not something that's ready for the adjuvant you know, space yet. And then there's the uncommon EGFR mutations. And you know, the second cluster, G719C and S768I, uh, you know, ends up in that particular category. And in fact, many times happen together. These are so-called compound mutations, uh, very typically, you know, happening together. And, you know, they would make the patient a good candidate if the patient had metastatic disease to treatment with either a fatinib, which is the approved choice, or a simertinib, which is not, not particularly approved for these mutations, but seems to have similar activity. Um, so, you know, it's this dealer's choice in a way, you know, which one you pick. Uh, but in this case, you know, what was the real challenge is that you pursued molecular fingerprinting, which is, which is kind of an evolving theme. And, you know, we use it from time to time and, and it can be very helpful. The problem is that we don't have any guidelines, you know, in, in, in our field as to how to put that into practice. So we many times just scratch our heads. Okay, the patient, you know, one tumor had 10 different mutations, the other one 12. How many match? Does, does, does that qualify as the same tumor or not the same tumor? I hope that we'll have guidelines from molecular pathologists soon enough. In this case, though, these are two very distinct, very identifiable EGFR mutations. They really seem to suggest that these are two different primaries. Why is the patient predisposed to them? And I want to challenge the field. We actually don't understand, you know, the, the, the molecular basis of EGFR mutated lung cancer. There's been interesting data from, you know, Charles Swanton's group in terms of environmental damage, but I'm sure that there's, there's still more to learn. And it's especially such a patient, why would she be predisposed to multiple? Who knows? Uh, but I think they need to be treated separately when it comes to adjuvant discussions. The uncommon mutations don't fall into the Adora study conversation as of yet. Uh, the other one is kind of borderline-ish. Yeah. So it's interesting. I remember this lady's discussion on tumor would well, and I was really you know, strongly staking that these are different mutations. We don't need to do anything. One was a minimally invasive. And she had these other little nodules that were really distracting people, and people were talking about that a lot. But I was thinking I was protecting her from the oncologist and saying, we don't need to give this lady adjuvant. I've cured this lady. I felt pretty certain about that. How many years ago was this? Uh, just two. Okay. Can, um, can we discuss this case again in three? Yes. Well, now we're going to discuss it. It's going to happen pretty quickly here, actually. So... Um, what would you recommend for this patient next? What do you think about that stage one osimertinib? Yes, uh, there, there's a couple of sort of high risk features, I guess, you know, with the multiple nodules and everything else. So I think adjuvant osimertinib is fair to discuss. Chemotherapy, I would have zero enthusiasm for it. In a node negative case, you know, EGFR mutated, where you have the targeted choice instead. No, um, I think observation or adjuvant osimertinib would be two fair discussions. And I think this is where you know, shared decision-making is so important where there's no, no clear guideline of this particular stage, the multiple, you know, uh, uh, primary tumor setting. So, you know, I thought I'd done well, but um, we didn't pursue any adjuvant therapy. We thought these were separate. She came back for a six-month interval CT scan, and all of a sudden, these little nodules, which had been really faint a couple of millimeters, she had multiple nodules like this that were sort of six, seven millimeters, some new. You can see a few of them highlighted there. And we got a PET scan and tried to sort of understand it um, and they had mild to moderate uptake. Again, pretty small nodules, but uh, some appeared to be avid and, and you could see this, this sort of distribution of nodules. We did do a liquid biopsy, just wondering, and it was negative. Um, some, a couple have asked here, what's the role of liquid biopsy in your opinion for early stage EGFR-driven lung cancer? 
Yeah, yeah, great question. Uh, you know, as I mentioned so at, at the start, when you know we had like two people in attendance, uh, for metastatic non-small cell lung cancer, liquid biopsy testing has become huge. It's it's an incredible complement, you know, for tissue-based testing. We can expedite the completion of expanded molecular testing, start patients on proper therapy. But liquid biopsy is still, you know, challenged by earlier stage cases where the yield is just just not 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 high enough to have full confidence in it. And, you know, what happens is if, if the ctDNA that you send is positive, credible information. If it's negative, you have no idea whether you've ruled something out or, or, or is it just an assay that you kind of wasted. So it's ready for prime time for early stage lung cancer in terms of helping diagnosis, helping management. Let's say a patient, you're thinking about neoadjuvant, the biopsy didn't have enough tissue for molecular, can I start send ctDNA? Really not the right approach yet. But in this particular case, I actually had a very identical patient. CTDNA is suddenly, you know, now you have a patient with likely metastatic disease, right? You're looking at multiple lung nodules. This is now, first of all, proving that the patient has recurrence, has metastatic disease, and confirming that you can go on with targeted therapy. Uh, CTDNA here suddenly have a little bit more of a yield and had an identical patient where we could save the patient from the biopsy, prove recurrence just by the molecular you know, marker in the bloodstream. Again, in that case, it was EGFR mutation. Um, in your case, it sounds like you did the right thing by sending the liquid biopsy to see if, if, if you might avoid you know, a resection, but it just didn't have enough yield. So she had pretty peripheral nodules, and we just took her to the OR, and I wanted to wedge out a couple since she had the different EGFR mutations the first time. Um, and so we got a left upper lobe wedge and a left lower lobe wedge, and they looked the same as the original histology, and both came back with EGFR 19 deletions, you know, consistent with that, the, the dominant lesion on the other side. So what do you think about this? I mean, a, cu- a couple of the questions, you know, metastatic disease almost seemed to be pre-existing disease that sort of blossomed after surgery. Um, osimertinib now, osimertinib plus chemotherapy, just uh, how do you think about this type of thing? And, and uh, somebody in the audience raised a great question. You just showed the Alina data that showed you don't need chemo. So do we need chemo here for this disease? Now it's stage four. We might not use chemo. Well, now it's stage four. So now we're going to follow the literature supportive of treatment choices for stage four disease. And up until a few months ago, the standard answer for a patient with EGFRX and 19 deletion positive disease was osimertinib, osimertinib alone, excellent treatment, very little side effects, very high efficacy, Median progression-free survival of just around 19 months. Terrific choice. But the last couple of months, we've seen now a couple of studies trying to offer combination strategies up front with the hope of delaying you know, progression even further and hopefully impacting overall survival even more significantly. And two of those studies read out, uh, and both of them are positive on a certain level, but both of them are posing challenges as to practical implementation and I think for thoracic surgeons, this is like, I just want the medical oncologist to take care of it. So I'll try to be, be brief. So FLORA2 adding chemotherapy to asimertinib definitely shows an improvement in progression-free survival. At the same time, patients need to suffer all the side effects of chemotherapy, and there's no overall, overall survival benefit yet. There seems to be a special benefit for patients with CNS disease. Now this patient might need to get a repeat brain MRI, as you just documented, metastatic disease. If the patient had CNS disease, we might consider adding chemotherapy. The other choice is now the bispecific antibody, amivantanab I mentioned, anti-EGF for a MET. 
uh, alongside an EGF for TKI, in this case, lazertinib, which is near identical to asimertinib. Significant progression-free survival, survival benefit with this combo, early trends for an overall survival benefit, but it's a significant package for patients to, to, to take. A lot of side effects in terms of gastrointestinal and dermatological side effects, infusion reactions, and even more concerningly, a 40% risk of thromboembolic events, calling for at least four months of anticoagulation. So it's just it's just a big 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 package, you know, to, uh, for patients to take. Uh, so we're, we're waiting, you know, for for more data on it. So asimertin alone for your patient, as long as the brain MRI is negative, you know, would seem like an, an appropriate choice. Fair, yeah, and it was negative, and she actually continues to do well with good disease control. All right, case two, a 61-year-old male, again, a never smoker with asthma, presents for evaluation of left lower lobe mass, dry cough for two years. Um, he presented again to the ED with a cough and had a three-centimeter density of left lung base concerning for malignancy. Um, uh, one imaging they measured out on another at 4.1 centimeters and recommended tissue sampling from the ED. He got a PET along the way. This is outpatient workup and had an SUV of 12, um, but really nothing else in the, in the nodes or in the brain MRI was negative. So what do you think for this patient? Would you handle this any differently than we did the first? Um, diagnostic wedge, it's a peripheral, but it's a little big. CT-guided biopsy because it's peripheral. Navbronch, Navbronch with EBUS. And it raises the question of do, do we do and you know, practice of people in the room do you or your interventional pulmonologist do routine lymph node stage and even for PET negative nodal, nodal stations? So um, we did do that. We did a, a we got a adenocarcinoma in the lesion. Um, and the 10L, this little small node, I think it was five millimeters, was positive for malignancy. So stage T2BN1, stage 2B. So Okay, so obviously the missing part of this right was the molecular test. And it was a never smoker, but we try to do this for all of our patients, particularly if we're thinking about offering neoadjuvant immunotherapy. And and so Balaj, talk to us about strategy for that. And there's a ton of questions about how quickly can tests be obtained? You know, should we get it all? You know, is it what's the acceptable time to order and conduct EGFR tests in early stage disease? You know, for this exact reason, right? We're under pressure. We want to get this patient treated. They want surgery. We're thinking about neoadjuvant therapy. What are the timelines? How should we test? Should we test everybody? Should we just test never smokers? What do you think? We should test everybody. Actually, I, I failed to point it out in the Adora study that I think 30% of the patients were smokers. Just because somebody smokes, they are, they are not protected from illnesses that non-smokers you know, can, can get. So everybody needs to be tested you know, for this complement. At least PDR one EGFR and ALCAP present in the earlier setting. Many institutions will say that if I have to do you know two molecular tests, it's just easier for me to run an NGS. And I think the NGS will provide you know, more information for the clinician as to the other alterations. Now, what's the right time frame? In the metastatic setting, the guidelines suggest two weeks or less. Two weeks is reasonable to accept. And it's definitely not easy for institutions to come up with a pathway where the pathologist can comfortably sign out, you know, the tissue and can get enough in time to the molecular pathology lab to complete all that testing within a very short time frame. So I, I would say two weeks is probably a, a reasonable guideline here as well. And I think, um, you know, we, we, we all do our best to, to achieve that. And I think nowadays, you know, mostly we do it, at least in our practices. Yeah, for sure. Um, so, you know, as we're thinking about this, well, let me, I, I, hopefully you'll be able to answer this because I want to ask Balaj what I think. So you've got a lot of options with this patient, right? Balaj, what, do you have a, a preference here? I do. I, the, the patient does have an actionable EGFR mutation. So I feel uncomfortable with the new adjuvant chemo immunotherapy plan. 
especially, not that it could not potentially help, but it could possibly harm the patient afterwards who could benefit from the adjuvant asimertinib. We're starting to understand that there's very particular adverse events that can happen with higher frequency if somebody had been exposed to immunotherapy and then, you know, gets put on asimertinib. So the keynote 671 EGFR patients seem to do well. What do you, what do you say to that? They seem to do well, but they, seem, they, they, they do incredibly well in, in the Adora scheme. So there, there's, no, <laughs> there's no reason not, not, not to stick with, or, with Adora in this particular patient. So the, the neoadjuvant I'm uncomfortable with. I think the others, you know, that incorporate asimertinib one way or the other, you can, you can potentially consider. But the more conventional would be, in this case, just resection and then adjuvant therapy. And how about a couple of people asked about neoadjuvant asimertinib? Is it ready for prime time? And, you know, one interesting question that's a little bit off topic, but, you know, mechanisms of resistance, are they different in early stage versus metastatic disease? And does our sequence of therapy affect that? Is there any evidence to suggest that? Well... You know, in terms of neoadjuvant, it's, it's not ready for prime time. I think for individual cases where there's a strong belief by the surgical team that neoadjuvant reduction in terms of tumor burden can impact the surgical approach, I think it's appropriate to offer, but it's not based on high level of evidence as opposed to the adjuvant use of asimertinib. So in this case, the adjuvant chemo and asimertinib is, is a great sequence, you know, to offer. As to resistance, I think we're actually still learning, you know, from the Adora study and other experiences as to what, you know, the acquired resistance mechanisms will be. I don't think there's any real expectation that they will be all that different from what we've already learned in the metastatic setting. And those are very specific. You know, there can be secondary mutations of the same EGFR pathway. Now there's fourth generation drugs being developed to overcome those. It can be bypass mechanisms such as amplification of MET combination EGFR, you know, met, met inhibition can be successful. It can be small cell transformation, which actually ends up being a, a, a tragical outcome for most of our patients. We offer small cell type treatment for those patients, but admittedly the benefit is, uh, you know, very limited. And there's still a group of patients where the acquired resistance mechanism remains unclear. So this patient did great. Uh, Dr. Morotana took him to the OR, did a robotoclobectomy. One of 17 nodes was positive, got adjuvant chemo, carboplatinum, and adjuvant OC. And so I think that's it. There's going to be some questions at the end that we'd love to ask. But then if there's any questions from the audience, we would love to get some avail yourself of Dr. Hamos to, to ask any questions. Um, and if there's any, you can also push some virtually to us as well. We've got about a minute or so left. Any questions out there? No. Yes, please. Uh, I guess the, the dose which is used is 80 milligrams. Is it not for the ADORA trial? 80, yes. And uh, if patients develop side effects, uh, severe side effects, and I had two patients uh, with skin reaction, uh, one of them, the onco medical oncologist, reduced the dose to 40 milligram, and another patient, even that didn't work, and he had to stop it. Now, my question is, the reduction of the dose, do we have data on that? Is it, is it as effective or not effective? Should we try it, or if the patient develops side effects, we should stop? Well, there's still no high-level data in the adjuvant setting as to how dosing makes a difference, but we have a very high level of comfort in the medical oncology field as to appropriately dose-adjusting and maintaining that dose in a way that, uh, you know, these, these side effects that could be impacting quality of life could, could, could be minimized. There are multiple papers in the metastatic setting to suggest that patients with significant side effects Reducing the dose actually doesn't compromise the outcome, and I sort of believe that most likely those are translated into this, this, this setting as well. 
I'm sorry to hear about your patients again. Osimertine, generally speaking, is actually a very, very well-tolerated drug. I have to admit, though, that in the adjuvant setting, patients seem to be willing to tolerate these side effects less than when they face metastatic disease. So that, that, that shift we've seen in terms of mindset, and, and that, that might be very, very appropriate for patients where maybe the benefit is not so clear after surgery whether they have to take a drug or not. If they have side effects, they might just think about stopping as opposed to when you have metastatic disease. Other questions? All right, great. Oh, Gavit. Okay. Um, my question is... Oh. Hi, Gavit Woodard from Yale. Um, my question is, with the Alina data um, in ALK showing how the adjuvant chemotherapy, you know, it wasn't even given, um, if you think about the Adura data, and it was dealer's choice from the oncologist as to whether or not patients received adjuvant chemotherapy, so obviously some selection bias to the groups who received it versus those that did not in Adura... Um, now that we have other data showing just the benefit of adjuvant-targeted therapy alone, does that make you less prone to give adjuvant chemotherapy in an EGFR mutant patient? Yeah, that's an excellent question. And first of all, congratulations on your beautiful award from this morning. Um, um, so yes, indeed, I think we need to recalibrate for whom we are for adjuvant chemotherapy. I would think that the targeted therapy is important foundation in my mind. And if you think about these survival curves, what extra benefit do we anticipate from adjuvant chemotherapy when somebody has an 85% five-year survival? We know that you know, the relative absolute risk reduction in, in terms of chemotherapy is in the range of 10 to 15% you know, relative. That could translate into a 1% absolute risk reduction for a patient on adjuvant-targeted therapy. Is that worth it? I, I, I would start having discussions, you know, with my patients, maybe end to disease, you know, I would still push it, node negative, forget it, you know, in between, I think it's a fair, fair discussion. Especially in light of your comments about how patients are less likely to tolerate side effects when a yeah. therapy is given in the adjuvant setting versus for metastatic disease. Dr. Woodard, what's the, what's your practice at Yale, the group's practice in that situation? Um, for, for chemo versus chemo OC. I mean, OC versus chemo OC. Again, it's, it's luckily a, um, a decision I don't have to make. We, I would refer them to oncology <laughs> and the oncologist discussion with the patient. But I think patients prefer the idea of not taking chemotherapy. And even from a surgeon perspective, as much as we're prefacing our early stage patients saying, oh, you know, this is part of a multidisciplinary team approach and you're going to need potentially some sort of additional therapy, depending on what mutations might be. Patients want to be curious after surgery and they want to be done. And so I think they don't like this idea of like, what, you said you got it all and why would I need additional therapy now? So I think patients are more into the concept of not being on chemo. Um, yeah, yeah, great comments. And again, it's, 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 it's a fluid, you know, field in a way. And there's some kind of conventionalists, you know, who will want to stick with the edge of chemotherapy as we've done it for 40 years. But I might say the ALENA trial... The evidence-based approach is not to give chemotherapy. The experimental arm had no chemotherapy. Why wouldn't we just stick with, you know, what's the evidence? And giving chemotherapy actually delays your ability to give the more effective adjuvant treatment. So actually shifting, you know, from the study design, you could compromise care. So that's something to consider as well. 
I have one other question um, or comment, really. Um, this is about uh, biopsies and testing. You know, we at our group, we're very heavily going the bronc ebus route just to, for one-stop shopping for the patient to get a diagnosis and sample the lymph nodes. In the first case you showed where there are two separate nodules, and in my mind, I was like, oh, this is going an you know, immunotherapy route. Um, when we are thinking about clinical trials in our patients, um, it actually is kind of useful to have a CT-guided biopsy first get a diagnosis, and then you can approach the patient for this additional, like, now we need an EBUS and we're going to have to get more tissue. And it allows us to collect a second set of samples for tissue diagnostic purposes, which is useful for in-house research, as well as things that might be required for clinical trials. I think it's a great point. I mean, I think it's a great point for your fancy patients at Yale. It's a little hard to get our patients sometimes back for a second biopsy. So I think it really does need to be taken in the context of the individual patient. Um, for us, you know, we're scheduling challenges a patient and getting them through and getting them through in a timely fashion. I know they're already facing a long neoadjuvant process. If we can do it in one step, it's important. But I appreciate, you know, in the perfect world, if you could have it, have the discussion, have why, get tissue for research to answer all these questions. I completely agree. In the Bronx, I think our patients will think the second biopsy might be a, a wallet biopsy. <laughs> Very true. Very true. All right. Well, thanks so much for everybody for coming and for spending a lunch with us. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash WFZ 860. This activity is supported by an independent educational grant from AstraZeneca.